let's do what this song suggests. Let's stand amazed in the presence of our Lord. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned Lord God, we come before you now. We thank you that we are in your presence, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We know that we need the power of your Holy Spirit to guide us in this worship. And we ask for that, Lord, that you would guide us every step of the way as we praise, as we pray. And especially, Lord, as we open your word, may it transform our very lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated and... Um, fill out one of these uh, uh, connection cards, if you would, please. Especially if you're visiting with us for the first or second time, we'd love to know uh, that who who's uh, visiting with us today, and and we would uh, will uh, uh, and also if you have any prayer requests. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, if you have any prayer requests, you can put those on the on the back as well, and we'll be faithful to pray for those. All right. And if you want any information about the church, there's some markings on the back there. You could say, I want to know a little bit more about the church. What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? All those type of things, and we'll, we'll contact you about that. Another important card that's just available to us starting today is uh, this little uh, Resurrection Sunday card, okay? And it's just an invite card. Uh, so we're encouraging everybody to grab four or five of these, give to friends, family, co-workers, and um, uh, that they could come and we could share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ on Resurrection Sunday. Speaking of Resurrection Sunday, uh, we're going to add a third service, okay? And so uh, let me ask, request this of you. If you do not need preschool care, uh, would you commit to the 8 o'clock service? Go ahead, collective groan. 
Okay. And, and uh, if, you, if you don't need preschool care, if you could help us by coming to the 8 o'clock service, we, we predict that the 930 service will be the most crowded. That's why we're trying to aim people away from that. Or come to the 11 o'clock, okay? There is preschool care for 930 and 11, but not, not 8 o'clock, okay? So just keep that in mind as you're inviting uh, people and for your own attendance, okay? Hey, let's um, sing together this, this great old hymn, this Isaac Watts hymn. Now, we're going to put it into a different, um, a different tune than we normally put it. I, I did that so it would cause us to think a little bit more about the text. Sometimes if we just sing a familiar text to a familiar tune, we just sort of just go right through it. I, I pray this will really get you to thinking deeply about what uh, Isaac Watts is trying to say in this text. Oh, 
bless his name today, let's sing this song that uh, reminds us that Christ is our hope. By the way, not uh, our American um, definition of hope, wish, right? Hope, certainty. Amen? Christ is our certainty in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command?
remain standing just a moment and read God's Word together. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses from all sin. Amen. You may be seated. Let's sing this great hymn that says just that. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the hymn writer, uh, John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, said this uh, later in his life, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's sing this song that reminds us of just that, okay?
grace, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? bow with me as Debbie plays this chorus one more time let's join Newton in his confession Lord I am a great sinner but you are a great savior let's pray silently Amen. You may be seated. What a great Savior we have. The Bible says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Ephesians chapter 2. If you make your way to this most important text of Scripture, this is our Scripture reading for this morning. Let's read chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10 in its entirety. The Bible says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath that's our condition outside of Christ like the rest of mankind but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not... Your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Ephesians, 
gives us a little anecdote about the life of Jeremy Bentham. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but he lived in the middle part of the 18th century, and he lived into the 19th century. So he lived from 1748 to 1832. He was a philosopher, and he's actually considered the father of utilitarianism. You say, what in the world is that? Well, you use the word utility, and basically what it means is that you look at all of life in an effort to gain the great happiness principle. Now, obviously, that's probably in the world around today for sure. But here's the deal about Bentham. He apparently left a fortune to a London hospital. He left a ton of money. And here's the one condition that Bentham left for the hospital. He said that he wanted to be present after his death at every board meeting. Hmm. So reportedly for some 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and he was placed, his remains were, at the head of the table. His skeleton was dressed in 17th century garb and he had a little hat that sat on top of his wax head. In the minutes of every board meeting, a line read, Mr. Bentham, present but not voting. Now I want to remind you, that came from his actual philosophy. He used that phrase, present but not voting. In the text of scripture that we have today, it shows us that we were spiritually dead and then God made us alive. You were literally present but not voting. That's our condition before God. Before you were made alive by the Lord. Did you notice that verses 1 through 3 is an introduction? It's a dreadful, bad introduction. There's one verb, there's one verb that drives the entire text of 1 through 10. Do y'all know what it is? Made alive. Okay? You don't get that until verse 4. Who's the subject of the text? God. One subject, God made us alive. So, in order for Paul... To help you understand what it means to be made alive, he has to tell you why it's such a glorious thing to be made alive by grace through faith. And it's because of our dreadful condition. And what he's going to give you is, in particular, people have labeled this. They have taught it uh, with using different kinds of acrostics and whatever else might be out there. But suffice it to say, what this passage says in verses 1 through 3 is that man is dead, enslaved, and condemned apart from Christ. That's basically what the text is teaching us. Now, I get it, folks. And I know that, that uh, our church is not uh, oblivious to this, nor have we not been affected by it. I get it, okay? And here's what I get. To hammer away in our therapeutic age on the historical doctrine of sin is to go against the stream of current thought. Put it on layman's terms, people don't like to hear that they're sinners. Now, we like to talk about critical race theory, but I'm going to tell you the critical aspect of race, period. We're sinners. And the only answer for the critical part of man, which is worse than critical, it's dead. <laughs> We're worse than critical. The only thing that can make us alive and the only thing that can solve man's dilemma 
is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection to give us life. So I get it. It's definitely against the stream of thought and unpopular for me to preach the sermon you're about to hear. But there's no way you've ever come to know the gospel if you don't realize this point. And that's why there are so many lost people in churches today that, are, that got up this morning and went to church. And they worship, so they think. They're, they're sitting in a church, but they don't know the gospel. They don't know the gospel of Christ. You know why? Because they don't realize their condition. And unless you realize your condition, you have no need for a Savior. There's no, there's no way around it. So this text is so vitally important. You know, a lot of preachers today are preaching the virtues that are in people. And they preach to people's good points. But in reality, when you read the Bible, we can't preach to the pretty sides of mankind. Because there's not any. Not left to ourselves. Now, can you do morally good things? Well, absolutely. But Jesus said, the good people don't need a physician. If you think you are morally good before the Lord and you don't realize you're a sinner, there's never a need for the gospel. But I'm telling you, folks, morally good people go to hell. You understand that clearly from the teachings of Christ. So if we look into the Bible honestly, then we see the nature of man's sin. And please, people, not only are we looking at this in a general way, but in order for you to really grasp this, you have to look at your sin. Not generically, not generally around the world, not looking at Washington and pinpointing their sin, but looking at yourself before a holy God. So, is there any way for me to adequately express to you the importance of knowing our sinful condition and the nature of sin itself? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote years ago, No man will ever have a true conception of the biblical teaching of redemption if he is not clear about the biblical doctrine of sin. You don't realize what redemption means nor can accept it if you don't understand the magnitude of your sinful condition. Do you realize that your understanding of grace is directly impacted by your understanding of sin? And I would suggest to you that if you're guilty of shortchanging the grace of God, if you're guilty of cheapening the grace of God, then you don't have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin. C.H. Spurgeon once said, there's a vital link between soul distress and Bible doctrine. If when I'm preaching this sermon your soul is distressed, you need to thank God that he's visited your heart. Because left to yourself, you never feel distress. Not about your soul condition. It's only after you've been awakened that you truly understand what soul distress actually is. So sovereign grace... Amazing grace of God, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have grown deeply because they see how grievous sinners they really are and that their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one that can resurrect a dead heart. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we must understand it not only theologically, but you need to understand it experientially, right? Is that a good enough introduction? Long enough? All right, let's dive into the passage. You're not going to believe this, but I'm only going to preach one phrase. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Next week, we'll talk about what enslavement is and then talk about condemnation. And I'd really love on Easter Sunday morning to preach God made you alive. But I thought about this, and I probably need to preach a text that literally has the word resurrection in it. Even though it's all over this, right? But after Resurrection Sunday, we'll hit God 
made us alive. So one point today with subpoints, we were spiritually dead. Okay? Let's first talk about the state of death. Now I'm not talking about like the state of Alabama or the state of Missouri, okay? We're talking about that state of man outside of Christ. Hear these words. You were dead. Do you know that there are certain commands, certain statements that are given in the Bible that are just straightforward and clear as the nose on your face? How about this one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do we call that? We call it a foundational truth that we adhere to. We believe that. We, you don't have to ponder it to try to figure out if it's actual or not. We can just look around, right? And know that our God created the heavens. It's a foundational truth. What it's actually called is an axiom. Okay? It's a foundational truth. In the very same way as we think of in the beginning God created, this is very straightforward, is it not? You were Dead in trespasses and sins. That's our state apart from Christ. Let's talk about what that actually looks like. What is that death? Number one, death is separation. Huh. Is that not true? What about physically? Now understand, this text is dealing with spiritual death, not physical death. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. First, death is separation. How do we know that? That's what Paul is thinking of. Well, James 2 verse 26 defines physical death for us as separation from the spirit and the body. When you die, lost or saved, there is a separation that takes place when you breathe your last breath. Your soul goes somewhere and your body is left to decay in the ground. That's called a separation. Here's what James says actually word for word. For the body apart from the spirit is dead. Y'all do realize that, right? There's no life whatsoever and there is a separation. So once the spirit or the soul leaves the body, then the body is lifeless and dead. So death is separation. Yet again, think about this. The kind of death that Paul is talking about is a death spiritually. At the, at the, very, at the center of this particular understanding that we were dead in trespasses, at the center of it is the issue of being separated. Well, how do we know this? In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't know if you figured this out or not, but something changed. You go from Genesis 1 and 2 where God made all things and it was very good, and then Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked don't underestimate this, and unashamed. And the Bible tells us that God would come and walk with Adam in the cool of the day. There was fellowship and harmony between Adam and God. So not only did Adam and Eve's relationship change, because immediately Adam knew that he was ashamed and sought for a covering, even around his wife, but it also made a radical change between Adam and God. Because you know these words in the Scripture. That God comes to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. But Adam hid himself. Make no mistake about it. When Adam ate, Adam died spiritually. He was separated from God. Adam does something to reflect the radical change that occurred in him. He hid himself. And why? It's because the day he ate, God told him. 
and the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, we know that Adam lived a long life. We would, we would probably sign up for that kind of longevity. I don't know how many years he lived, 120 maybe? I don't know for sure, but he lived a long time. Folks, he died immediately spiritually in the sense that he was separated from God. Now, Isaiah says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. Death is separation. Paul in Ephesians 4 is going to use a phrase several times and it describes the Gentiles before they came to know Christ. So in other words, he's describing us, right? Because we're Gentiles. And he says, you were cut off. You were excluded from God. So folks, realize, when Paul says you're dead in trespasses and sins, this is a spiritual death of separation between us and God. Thomas Goodwin wrote, the life of the soul is in God. And it is sin and sin only that can separate us from the life of God. Sin, death, death separates us from God. Number two, death is lifelessness. We sang numerous old hymns today, did we not? There's one that I really, really love and cherish, and it's called, And Can It Be? What a song. In the fourth stanza, it describes the lifelessness or life outside of Christ when it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Not only does this song convey bondage, but lifeless bondage outside and apart from Christ. Biblically, we could put it like this. To be lifeless is to have a heart of stone. Well, so preacher, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us. Our condition without Christ and before the new covenant is applied to our lives, we have a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 verse 37 says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Folks, what do we know about flesh? It's soft. It's pliable. What characterizes a stone? It's cold. It's hard. And it's unresponsive. I remember years ago there was a craze called a pet rock craze. Please don't tell me you've got one today. But let's say you do have a pet rock. And let's name him Rock. Right? Let's call him Rock. Well, I know that you could actually build a little rock house for Rock. Right? Let's say you get up in the morning and you say to that rock, as your pet, time to go potty. Does he respond? No, he doesn't. I mean, you can have all the compassion in the world you want to have for your pet rock, but he's going to be unresponsive. I have a pet, and he's not a rock. He's a big old German shepherd, and his name is Chief. And if I pick up a ball... This dog wags his tail, his ears fly up, and I can fake it 20 times and he'll run three yards and slam on brakes every time. And then I can chunk it out in the yard and he can dig that ground up and grab that. He is responsive. 
We might say chief doesn't have a heart of stone. Or he doesn't have stone to respond. He's responsive to me. He spins around, he wags his tail when you say treat. He's happy, right? Folks, rocks are dead and lifeless. They simply don't respond. They're incapable of responding. They're incapable of movements. So when the Bible says you're dead in trespasses and sins, it means that there was absolutely no life spiritually in you before God made you alive in Christ. So to be lifeless spiritually is to be cut off from the very fountain of life. So as you look at this world and people who are without Christ, compassion should well up in your heart. Why? Because they're dead. They're separated from the king. And they're lifeless. This also is something that you need to think about when you're sharing the gospel. You don't put, the, you don't, you don't put everything on your ability to persuade someone with your conversation. Only God can make he or she alive. So we're depending on God to take a rock and make it pliable. That's what we're asking God to do. Why? Because salvation's of the Lord. Jonah 2.9. J.C. Ryle said, when the ears are deaf to the voice of Christ. Ask yourself today, are my ears deaf to the voice of Christ and the gospel? And your ears are blind to the beauty of the kingdom of God. And your mind is full of the world and it has no room for spiritual things. When these marks are in a man or a woman, the Bible describes that position as dead. Dead. Number three, death is spiritual brain death. Not only are we dealing with separation and lifelessness, but we're dealing with spiritual brain death. You know, Jesus said this one time in John 17, 3. Check this out. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, don't run ahead of me. I know some of you are already thinking, well, yeah, this is life to know God, but you've got to know him through Christ. And that's right. But just think about the essence of eternal life and spiritual life. It is to know who? God. So what is it, if that's essential for you to know God, that knowing him is essential for eternal life, then what does that tell you about someone who's in spiritual death? It means they're ignorant from knowing God, period. That's the condition of man. What is the essence of eternal life? It is to know God through Christ Jesus. Since to know God is the essence of eternal life and spiritual life, then the essence of spiritual death is to be ignorant of God. It is to not know God. You know, you can be spiritually dead and know a lot of things about God. But someone who is spiritually dead doesn't know God. So to be spiritually brain dead means you do not understand spiritual, the spiritual things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. The natural man. Who's the natural man in, in Corinthians? It's the unregenerate person who is still dead in trespass and sin. The natural man, the Bible says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So to be dead in trespasses and sin is to be outside of the knowledge of God which means you're spiritually brain dead. Let's be honest. We all know this from personal experience, don't we? How many of you came to faith in Christ at a later time in life? 
Raise your hand up high. Come on, raise it up. Don't be ashamed. All right, a lot of people in here. What was your response when you heard all the gospel truths before that day? Maybe there was some watering of the ground, churning up the soil. Maybe like the Apostle Paul standing, holding the garments of those who murdered Stephen. That's got to make some kind of impact on you. But for the most part, you heard all of it, but you didn't hear all of it. Right? You heard truths, and you could even identify statements. The demons of hell can give you the gospel up one side and down the other. They believe in Jesus, and they shudder at his voice, but they're not saved. They have a knowledge, but they do not know him. And you can remember the time when God did open your eyes. I was getting my ears lowered the other day. In the south, that's getting a haircut. And I was at the barber shop over here. It's literally called the barber shop. And a a guy named Chris was cutting my hair. Jimmy and Chris cut my hair. They did both a super job. But Chris and I were talking about salvation. And he told me, he said, Pastor, for the longest time, I'd hear things, and it just made it worse. Which, that's what the wages of sin means. It's like you're putting up a debt, and you're stacking up the debt like this. All right? Wages of sin is death. And Chris said, I, I was pretty much in an atheistic stupor. He said, but all of a sudden, one day, a friend was sharing with me the gospel. And for the first time, I understood it wasn't about working. It wasn't about anything I could do. It was about the grace of God. I'm telling you, folks, I like to went into a spin cycle in that chair, praising God, because that's exactly what happens. You are spiritually brain dead. And all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians remind us, just 2 Corinthians, just as God spoke creation into existence by saying, let there be light, he begins to funnel that light through the mind of the truth of the gospel. Your sinful condition and the beauty of Christ and the wooing of the Holy Spirit of God. Whew, that's an amazing work of God. So, to be dead in trespasses and sin is to be spiritually brain dead. So, some of you have people you've witnessed to recently. And you know what this means. You, you hammer these truths, you give it to them. and it's, They understand the principles in part but they don't know God. They are dead in trespasses and sins. So here's the deal. That spiritual brain deadness precludes us from knowing God and understanding the gospel apart from being made alive. Impossibility. Spiritually brain dead. Number three, death is also a sentence of the law. Did y'all know that? In the moment you eat this, here's the command. You will die. The sentence of the law demands death. Now consider this for a moment. Uh, We have something called the death penalty, don't we? Now in our day, you could live 25, 30, 40 years on death row and never die. You may die physically inside of the jail before you ever die according to the sentence That's been given to you. But you know, folks, that wasn't always the case. What's that group around here, those vigilantes? Yeah, ask those guys. I mean, their sentence came down and they died. So in other words, back in the day, if you got the death penalty, you were as good as dead. You you were, in essence, were a walking dead man, which is the condition of lost people without Christ. You look as alive as possible. You're physically doing all things and going about life, but you're dead 
spiritually before the Lord. So as Paul moves to his most dramatic display of the power of God, remember, what was he talking about? The power of the resurrection. And he flips right into chapter 2, verse 1, and he says almost like this, paraphrase, you want to see the power of God? Let me show you the condition of man and what Jesus can do with it. You can be dead. You are dead, separated, brain dead, away from God, lifeless. And then under the sentence of death. And the risen Savior can still make you alive. And he will make you alive if you believe the gospel. Amen? That's the state that we are in apart from Christ. Now let's talk for a moment about the realm of death. So the state is we're dead. What's the realm of it? You are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, Paul could have easily said, you are dead in sins. And that would have covered it for the most part, right? In our minds, he could have said, you're dead in trespasses. But why does he make it comprehensive? Y'all stay with me. We don't have much left. This is the shorter part of the sermon, okay? Why does he say, Dead in trespasses and sins. Well, a transgression is an active violation of the law. In other words, God draws a law, draws, God's law draws a line at this point, and to trespass it is to go over the line that God has set. Any of you guilty? Don't say a word. You will define your guilt, right? So, what about... We, we, we understand that is to transgress the boundary that God has set. Transgression. Trespass. The idea of sins has in it certainly the principle of lawlessness. Why? Because 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. Pretty straightforward, right? But what does that word harmatia also cover? Well, it carries the meaning of falling short of a standard. Here's the deal, folks. Not only have you violated and gone over the boundary that God has set, but God put forth His glory and you flunked. Everybody in this room, you failed the test. You fall short of the glory of God. If you put those two things together, here's what it is. You were dead because of your own transgressions, the violations of God's law, and because we have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. How many of you have heard of the sins of omission and the sins of commission? Raise your hand real high. Okay, let me educate you if you haven't. Commission means sins. And when I was in a uh, Pentecostal college playing a little basketball and going to that school, uh, you entered the School of Christian Ministries if you were there. And I had a lot of conversations with traditional Pentecostals about omission and commission. How does all that work together? Well, here's the fact of the matter. When you consider sins of commission, that means straight out acts of violation, uh, which would be more trespasses. When you consider omission, those are sins that you fall short of a standard that God has set forward. So think about this. Time would fail me to begin to tell you how many times I violated the law of God. And you think my sermons are long. Let me hear your sermon about your biography, about your sins. The violations. Of times that you've transgressed the law of God. It's like telling a child not to get into the street. What does that little pagan do? As soon as you turn your head, baby Ajax is standing in the street. Now, 
When have you ever had one of your kids say, wow, dad has given me a command that exists for my good. I might actually have some enduring pain if I stand in this road. No, that kid stands there and says, the street. What's up with the street, man? This is great. Right? You know full well. Not only was that your attitude, that's the attitude of your children. Because the Bible says in the book of Psalms that we come forth from the womb speaking lies. Authenticates experientially our condition. So, even if you wipe away all the transgressions, listen folks, that you've ever committed in your life, and God did that, the times that you've fallen short before a holy God would also plunge you into eternal punishment. So you deserve hell, folks, based upon your active violations of the law of God and the fact that God has set forth His standards and we all fall short. Is that clear enough? Mm. Let's take a simple command, if you would dare to differ with me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Raise your hand if you've done that your whole life. You know, that's the sin that got the rich young ruler. Lord, I haven't transgressed any of these things. I've honored my mother and father. Go sell all you have and sell it, give it to the poor. What did Jesus know? He couldn't even survive the first command. You don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You love your money more than you love God. So, do y'all know how important the law is in order for us to know that we're sinners? I mean, it's pretty easy to put the law out there in the theoretical and say, well, I know it exists. But when you see the commands of God, it takes the theoretical and puts it in to concrete terms in your own life. You want to hear some of them? God's law doesn't say, well, you're not perfect, that's okay. It, it doesn't say, oh, I get it in our world, therapeutic age. Everybody's got their warts and their problems. God's law says you shall have no other gods before me. Is that pretty straightforward? The theoretical has come down to land in your heart. God of eternity says you shall have no other gods before me. If that's not enough, the Bible says you shall not make any graven images to worship or to serve them. Y'all doing good? Number three, you shall not take my name in vain. And if you do so, you will not go unpunished. <whistles> Strong. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How many of y'all are? Y'all doing good? Are you? How about number five? Honor your father. And mother, and so shall your days when he fleshes it out in Deuteronomy shall be long upon the face of the earth. You shall not kill. I know what you good Baptists are saying. I'm good on that one, preacher. Really? Jesus said if you have anger in your heart, you've broken this commandment. If it's toward your brother. Not doing so good, are you? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Folks, do y'all realize that this is also a bill of rights? Because really, I've got an opportunity from God and freedom to own some property, and you can't take it. I have my wife right there, Natalie Burden. She's mine, not yours. It's a bill of rights. As long as you're in the freedom of the Spirit of God to understand the law, you're set free. Right? God. 
Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul understands that how important the law is because Paul says when the law came up and revived itself, I died. It is the law of God that shows you your predicament before him. So in other words, God's law brings sin right down to the concrete terms. It's verified in the Bible. It's defined in the Bible that we're under the sentence of death when it comes to the law. Why? We're in trespasses and sins. Now, how did we die? Was anybody thinking about that question? How did we die? Well, it's a complex answer in the Word of God, but let me give you a little hint. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know that we all die in Adam, right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. When Adam died spiritually in the garden, we died in him. How did death enter this world? Death entered through one man's sin. How did sin come to all men? All men sinned in the one man, Adam. So with Adam as your legal representative before God, when Adam died, all mankind died. Now flip over to Romans. I'm not going to leave you there. At 1 Corinthians, would you flip back to Romans chapter 5. Some of us may have the attitude that that's very unfair. You ever thought about that? Adam, look what you did to us. I always jokingly say, well, it was the woman that ate Adam out of house and home. No, you know, I'm just kidding. But Eve was deceived, but God lays the blame of the sin upon the man. Why? Because the man was put in the leadership to be the head. That's why. Even though Eve technically sinned first, the responsibility was put upon the man. Adam stood by passively while the woman partook of the fruit. He took it willingly and ate it and plunged all of humanity into sin. Does that sound unfair? Well, before you rail against this, remember that there's another biblical teaching on which your eternal life hinges. And it's in this same text. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Is that plain enough? The doctrine of sin. Federal headship of Adam. Now let your eyes flow down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Note those words. The condemnation for all men came from Adam's sin in the garden. So one act of righteousness, hallelujah, leads to justification and life for all men. You need a little better understanding? Next verse. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hallelujah for Jesus. Right? Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. So when you're tempted to think that it's unfair to have sin imputed to us because of Adam, don't appeal 
for the grace and righteousness of Jesus to be imputed to you on your behalf if you can't believe that you're a sinner because of Adam. They're both in the text. The wages of sin is death. We died legally and federally in Adam because, but also die spiritually when we sin as an active violation. And again, the Bible says, the wicked go forth from the womb speaking lies. Now, Paul said when the commandment revived, I died. What does that mean? When you realize what a great sinner you are, that's when you die. And you come to the end of self-satisfaction. You come to the end of self-security. You come to the end of of trying to attain something on your own. Remember, a stone is helpless. A stone is unresponsive. So hear this. To live in this world apart from Christ is to live in the very realm of spiritual death. And in our world, we like to have multiple categories of people in all religious circles. That's not true in the Bible. There's only two people that live on the face of this earth. Two kinds of people. Lost and saved. There's no middle ground whatsoever. To be in Christ is just to be that. Ephesians chapter 1. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. On your way to heaven when you die. Living for Christ now. uh, Justified. Being sanctified. One day will be glorified. But to be apart from Christ is to be dead. Lifeless. Separated. Brain dead. Under the sentence of the law. There's no other categories in the world other than lost and saved. If you need to hear the red letters in the Bible. Jesus said, you're either of your father the devil or you of God the father. There's no middle ground. So hear this. To live in this world apart from Christ is to be living in the very realm of sin and death. So if you're lost today and you don't know Christ, you are a walking sepulcher. You are entombed in death. That is what the Bible says. Now we're not there yet, but aren't you thankful for verse 4? Oh, have you gained a little bit more appreciation for grace listening to this sermon? Oh, let your eye, we're not there. Look at it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, If it's not enough to tell you you're dead in trespasses, he has to do it one more time so that you think about the weight of being made alive by the Lord. So think of this. We are in the grave of our own sins, and then we have verse 4. Folks, what is the only thing that can help someone with such a death? Dead, right? Lifeless, separated, brain dead. Under the sentence of the law, what's the only thing that can help us? An act of God wherein he resurrects the heart. God has to take something that is dead and make it alive. That's the power of the Son of God to save sinners. That's what God does. It's of the Lord. Remember this. Man outside of Christ is dead. Man is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Now, we use a term often called total depravity. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you are as bad as you can be all the time. But it does mean that you're as bad off as you possibly could be. Major difference here. As far as I know, I've never read anything where Adolf Hitler kicked his mama or his dog. But we know what was in the heart of that man. 
So it doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be all the time. But folks, this description of man makes it dreadful for us apart from Christ. And you need to hear that this morning. It's the only way you can ever have spiritual life is to bow a knee to the king. Bow your heart to the only one that can resurrect someone who is dead spiritually. And if you sense in your spirit the distress of your soul over the condition of your sin, that's not the enemy. That's the Savior. Wooing your heart to trust Jesus only for salvation. You can't help yourself. You cannot recover yourself from your state. Only God can save sinners. Only God can resurrect a dead heart. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Did y'all know that? It's the day we celebrate it. Okay, Palm Sunday leading to resurrection. Jesus actually prayed when he was headed to the cross this particular prayer. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I will do your will. What is that cup representing? The wrath of God that you deserved. If you read a little further in this text, it says that we were all before Christ under the wrath of God. And here's the glory of the gospel. God the Father mixed and measured the ingredients of the cup. And it was the sins of all the people in this world that the Savior would save. And the Bible teaches us that the Son of God said, I will do your will. And the Son of God drank the cup of the wrath of God that you deserved. And you get to drink grace. Man, folks. If that doesn't get you going in your heart for grace and mercy. That you were in that kind of condition. And yet God would love you. Not just in the present. But from eternity past. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. For grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. Aren't you thankful that God did not leave you for dead? You ought to be a worshiping church. A thankful church. A church of gratitude. A people of grace is what this church ought to be. People who all are always excited about the king who can save sinners. Right? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you made us alive. God, thank you so much that you saved our souls. And what a dreadful picture Paul paints through the inspiration of the Spirit. Dead in trespasses and sin. Enslaved to the enemy. Sons of disobedience. We walked that way. But, oh, Father, thank you for verse 4. But God, rich in mercy. Lord, if there is someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, they may have heard the gospel a thousand times as a child. They may have even walked an aisle and said, yep, I'll sign the dotted line. Who wants to go to hell? I'm glad I'm free. That's not salvation. Salvation is an understanding that we've transgressed your law. It's an understanding that we are sinners, we've violated, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We are utterly and desperately in a dreadful situation. But you quicken our hearts to see the glory of the gospel and the need for a Savior because of our sinful condition. And you in turn drink the wrath of God that we deserved 
in order for us to be gloriously saved. God, help us. Help us to be a church of the gospel. Help us to think deeply about theology, about the condition of our hearts before God. And Lord, if it's your sovereign will, would you save a sinner today? May they bow before you. Give up the reins. Will you turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing, What is our hope in life and death? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart at His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope in life and death. I forgot to tell you kids so that you would lock in with me. Y'all remember Finding Nemo? Don't touch the boat. That's not the terminology used in it. But you kids, if you don't catch this, that's what it means to transgress the law. When Papa Nemo, what's his name? Myrtle, Merle, Flipper Fish. When he says... Don't touch the boat. He transgressed the law when he went to the boat. And God said in Ten Commandments, actually it's one word, five words. This is what you shall not do and what you shall do. And all of us are sinners coming forth from the womb, right? We've transgressed the law of our God. Well, my heart was sad yesterday, but glad at the same time. Miss Bonita Moore went to be with the Lord. Saddens me, but she suffered from pancreatic cancer. And you know what we've been preaching? Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. She just saw the full reality of what that means. Mm. Isn't that good? Pray for the family. Miss Mary is going to meet with them today at 1. We, we, we're pretty sure the funeral will be here. And uh, we'll get that information out to the church as soon as we can. All right? God bless you. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Brother David? God bless you this week. On your way out, be sure and uh, grab one of these Easter Sunday invite cards, all right? God bless.